Hide nothing from the masses of our people. Tell no lies, expose lies whenever they are told. Mask no difficulties, mistakes, failures. Claim no easy victories. Amilcar Cabral. It's around 2 p.m. on the 9th of March, 2021, in Bissau, the capital of Guinea-Bissau. The streets are busy as people come and go about their business, and journalist Antonio Alai Silva was driving his car when he came to a stop. Then, in front of a watching public, four heavily armed men approached his car and forced him out at gunpoint and into an unmarked white van. The Committee to Protect Journalists then report that he was driven to an industrial area away from the city centre, where they forced him to unlock his phone before choking and beating him unconscious with fists and rifle butts. Silva survived the attack after being found by passers-by before going to a medical centre run by the United Nations Development Programme. He didn't file a report with law enforcement about the attack. But why? Silva told the CPJ that he didn't trust public institutions, but also who attacked him might have had something to do with it. Of the four, three wore olive green t-shirts under their civilian clothing, t-shirts that looked suspiciously similar to those worn by the Bissau Ghanaian military. So if it was the military, why target Silva? Well, Silva is the editor of the blog Ditadura di Consenso, that frequently criticizes the government and current president, Umaro Sissoko Mbalo, a president that Silva claims has threatened him before, a statement, of course, denied by the president. How did the immortal words of the father of Guinea-Bissau's independence, Emilcar Cabral, uttered just five decades earlier, become so lost? Corruption, dirty money, cocaine, illegal logging, and a political and military leap that hold the key to it all. This is Deep Dive, exploring organized crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The major part of these people have to go back to cultivate the soil. And a few hours later, the head of state, President Joao Bernardo Vieira, was also assassinated. Throughout this podcast, we will chart the course of Guinea-Bissau from independence to the present day through the eyes of civil society organizations who step in to fill the void left by an absent state. Let's start with a little about the country itself. Guinea-Bissau is a small coastal nation in West Africa with a population of under 2 million. Lying off the coast are the Biagos Islands, an archipelago rich in biodiversity, but also a prime location for illicit drug smuggling. Frequent political instability and a lack of development has made the former Portuguese colony one of the poorest nations on earth with just under 70% of the population living below the poverty line. The reason why the illicit economy of Guinea-Bissau is so important is because of its role as a transit country 
in the international cocaine trade from Latin America to the European market, a trade largely encouraged by the political and military elite, a subject we will return to in a future podcast. This influx of dirty money has severely damaged the development of the country, creating distrust in a factional political class and a system of micro-patronage. Now, to understand how Guinea-Bissau got to this point, we need to look back at when the country broke free from the shackles of colonialism and how independence shaped the nation we know today. Enter one of the titans of African liberation, Amilcar Cabral. We think that um, uh, all the time there still be colonies in Africa. Africa will not be really independent. We think that our people have the obligation to liberate our country, see, to contribute for the liberation of Africa. We think that. Uh, doing what we are doing we are proving that we are africans we are men and we are conscious of our rights in the context of the story of our time to speak of guinea bissau's independence is to speak of the great african nationalist movement after world war ii which triggered african consciousness for independence this is Rui Landim, a political analyst and specialist in education and development studies. He has headed the National Institute for Educational Development and has been a consultant to several international organizations. You could say it's one of the most successful liberation fights. It is an example, alongside Algeria, of how people determined to become free, self-owning. Fights at the level of national liberation movements. Therefore, his experience has been studied in several universities around the world. Assassinated just months before independence was achieved, Amilcar was succeeded by his half-brother and African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, or PAIGC, co-founder Luis Cabral, who became the first president of Guinea-Bissau in 1974. Viva nos combatentes da libertação nacional! Viva! Viva PSDC! Viva! Glória imortal a camarada Mirka Cabral! Viva! Viva a população de Bissau! Viva! But just six years later, in 1980, the armed forces led by João Bernardo Nino Vieira overthrew Luís Cabral. Depois deste texto ter sido aprovado por unanimidade, a primeira Assembleia Nacional da nossa história exprimindo a vontade soberana do nosso povo, proclama solenemente o Estado da Guiné-Bissau. This was the first of around nine military coups in the post-colonial history of Guinea-Bissau. Some successful, some not. And to understand the political environment of the country and the tension that has existed between the military and politicians since independence, it's important to look at how the modern military evolved from this armed revolutionary movement. Is Ruilandim again? The armed forces began to age. Recruitment did not obey the principles of creating national cohesion and defending national unity. Defending independence, and they began to integrate into their midst factions that were, in a way, 
part of the political quarrels that were going on within the party apparatus, the PSGC, at time. Because of this intimate link with the PAIGC political state, the Bissau-Ghanian military, no longer with the unifying objective of independence, became littered with the same factionalism and political intrigue as the politicians. Since independence, the military has remained actively involved in the politics of the country. After coming to power, Nino Vieira retained a strong grip over Guinea-Bissau for the next 19 years before a democratic multi-party system was established in the latter years of his rule. During Nino's tight grip over the country and the relative period of political stability in the 1980s and 90s, there was a boom in civil society organizations. At the beginning of independence, the state and the party were the only actors in society. Then came the development of the 80s and the 90s and the policy of economic and political liberalization. This is Augusta Enriquez, a pioneer of the formal and organized civil society movement in Guinea-Bissau, to which she has devoted about 30 years. Now it happened that there were senior officials working in the public sector in these projects and who saw here an opportunity to create independent organizations, free from party political ties that would allow them to have this proximity and contact with the people, particularly in the rural world, but not only to encourage local development. And this is how the dynamic NGO came about, as the state became, because of the obligations it took on it in micro-political terms, absent from the territory, particularly in the interior of the country. In 1991, she founded Tiniguena, one of the first three non-governmental organizations in the country where she remains an advisor. During this period of turmoil for the West African region, Guinea-Bissau remained relatively stable. However, just across the northern border in the Casamance region of neighboring Senegal, a separatist movement was born, the Movement of Democratic Forces of Casamance, or MFDC. Why is this relevant, I hear you ask? It was the elite and military within Bissau who trafficked weapons to those separatists. Don't be mistaken, this was not for ideological reasons, but rather to support their own economic and political ambitions in Bissau. It cannot be underestimated what a pivotal step this was for the country, because it was these trafficked weapons and the illicit funds they generated that first led the ruling elite and military to become embroiled in the illicit economy. An involvement that has since evolved to centre on cocaine and logs. Not long after, Guinea-Bissau descended into a bloody civil war of its own, which saw Nino Vieira forced into exile. The involvement of elites in the illicit markets would plunge the country into repeated cycles of conflict. Over the next two decades, only one president would see out his entire term in office. After the end of a short but brutal civil war, 
In the year 2000, Kumbayala, the former philosophy teacher, was elected president of Guinea-Bissau, famous for his fiery speeches and woolen hat. Here's Rui Landim again. He was the figurehead. He was the one who led the great democratic demands of the political struggle in Guinea-Bissau. He created a party. He came from within the PGC and assumed everything about his membership, his admiration for the PGC, for what was done. He was also the spokesman, the flagship for democracy in his own way of freedom. And in that spirit, he dreamed that Guinea-Bissau was a country where social justice, freedom reigned, and especially where there should be merit to reach certain levels. But unfortunately, in the exercise of free power, he did the opposite. And it was during President Kumbayala's term in office that Augusta Enriquez used the voice of civil society to influence government policy and to protect and empower communities. Our work is more closely linked to environmental policy and culture, trying to influence, for example, dossiers such as sheep dismantling. We learned that there was a private project to bring a sheep dismantling factory to Bulama. We tried to inform ourselves what this was about. And then we had the information, we saw the environmental risk it posed, it was going to pollute all the streams of the Bijagoza archipelago through all the ways that comes from that work. The dismantling of ships was also going to bring great poverty because it involves very poorly paid and protected labor in terrible sanitary conditions. And it was going to transform the Bijagoza archipelago, which really is part of the jewels of Guinean natural heritage crown into an outlet for old ships from Europe. We were able to refuse this project precisely because of this position of political distancing, not of exemption, but of political distancing. We were able to deal with this at one of the most difficult times for Guinea-Bissau, in the time of President Kumbayala. We went to his office, we tried to show how that dossier was of no interest to the Guineans, on the contrary. At that time, there was no government, there was no parliament, the court did not work, but we were able to have that dialogue. We didn't do it alone. We did it by enlisting other partners. We allied ourselves with IUSN, with Suicide, we allied ourselves with other organizations that dealt with environmental issues. And we managed to make a common front and the project was rejected. This would not be the last time that civil society so strongly shaped policy, particularly in context of preventing environmental crime. But the uphill challenge for civil society in Guinea-Bissau is such that they work alongside a political class so mired in corruption and factional politics that it constantly fails its own citizens. State infrastructure underpins the illicit markets. The elites are focused on drawing rents from the country's resources, leaving the populace, where the vast majority still live below the poverty line, to fend for themselves. And the Kashuna, the engine of the Bissau-Guinean economy, is the key survival mechanism for most families in Guinea-Bissau. 
The nut is pivotal in shaping the country's illicit markets. The strength of the cashew economy provides a level of independence and self-reliance for the Basau Ghanaians, but it also allows a significant proportion of the population to delink itself from the elite and the ongoing crisis that materialized from their political rivalries and competition for control of the illicit markets, such as cocaine or logging, markets from which ordinary citizens receive very little. Again, the words of Amilcar Cabral ring through the ages. We do not confuse exploitation or exploiters with the color of men's skin. We do not want any exploitation in our countries not even by black people. Words again forgotten by the elites of the 21st century. Augusto Mario is the president of the GMB Human Rights League. Systems in which the state identifies the weakness of its people, its citizens, and seeks to intervene to mitigate the effects of this volatility. We call them welfare states a state that seeks to provide the means to meet the basic needs of its citizens. The state of Guinea-Bissau does not have this perception. The Guinean state does not have the de facto capacity to design public policies aimed at solving immediate and basic problems of our fellow citizens. What happens is that the state is captured by obscure interests. Corruption is preventing the state from effectively securing or meeting these basic needs of citizens. As a result, citizens are completely abandoned, at the mercy of their luck. Therefore, there is no state mechanism for designing public policies to improve the quality of life of citizens, and especially the most disadvantaged layers of society. In the late 90s, as we heard earlier, the elites first turned to illicit markets to fund their political ambitions. And ever since this point, they have coalesced around a system of rent-seeking, with a stranglehold over the connections between Bissau and the outside world, all for the purpose of rent extraction. This stranglehold further exacerbates competition among the elites for control of those rents, particularly those from the lucrative illicit markets, driving rivalries, factionalism and conflict resulting in four successful coups and the many political killings that litter Guinea-Bissau's short history. The main reason for this is the political instability and poor governance. This lack of trust has been the mirror of the institutional relationship of our institutions, and it is due to this political instability. Udi Fati is an economist and social activist, as well as the head of Vostipas, a non-governmental organization working in research and action to promote the culture of peace in Guinean society. Instability does not allow people to reflect. Many resources could be directed towards development, towards investment in social and economic infrastructure, in education. The more there is instability, the less resources for investment. And when there are no resources for investment, there is no way to create a common purpose. This instability not only affects the present generation, but also has consequences for the future generation. For years of instability cannot be resolved in four other years to come. It is a very long process for all work, for example, in the field of conflict or development. Much attention is drawn to any time wasted on instability. But the same or even more time is needed to create stability. 
The frequent political instability has a significant impact on the country's capacity to grow, to obtain business income and consequently to create jobs and generate much needed tax revenue. And that political instability showed itself again, as Kumbayala's time in power was brief. In 2003 he was overthrown in a coup and military rule was established. It was at this point that there was a scaling up of cocaine trafficking in the country and region more broadly. Just three years later, by 2006, cocaine trafficking had exploded in Guinea-Bissau. But the influx of drug money created a self-reinforcing cycle, with illicit money bolstering the political and military elite, who showed little interest in the development of the wider economy and society. And that misgovernance prevents any form of sustainable development or external financial support, which means those same elites have a greater reliance on that drug money. The vicious narco cycle is complete and the instability continues. Rui Landin. The state as an institution has failed disappears and vanishes, little by little. There is no sense of state from those who are there. What matters is to use the structure for personal gain, for enrichment. That's what's been happening. The deterioration of everything that are rules, norms. That is no longer even instability. We are talking about chaos. Instability is temporary. Here, we are talking about installation of progressive chaos in the face of extinction of a society. When dealing with such entrenched self-interest that has become so ingrained in the political system, how do the various strands of law enforcement even begin to tackle this chaos? And are they even willing and able to do so? Well, if there is one phrase that describes law enforcement in Guinea-Bissau, it's fragmented. Ferdimani is from the University of Bissau. This fragment structure can be seen precisely in the existence of several fragments, commands, several decision centers, several chains of orders, and these chains follow those who have recruited them. Some of them even have obedience linked to the board of the party. When it's the case, fighting organized crime it's very difficult because the criminal agents know with whom to seek relationship and having this relationship no one can touch them because they already have a protection of the chiefs the barons and we saw an example of this in september 2018 when the judicial police acting on intelligence obtained from foreign police connections headed to the osvaldo vieira international airport in Bissau where they were to arrest two suspects from Brazil, thought to have illicit drugs in their possession. But then Minister of the Interior, Motaro Diallo, arrived at the airport with six National Guard agents and ordered the judicial police to surrender the suspects to them. This is just one example of a number of similar occurrences. So as you can see, law enforcement in Guinea-Bissau is fragmented, but arguably the most effective are the judicial police. The judicial police have capacity 
mainly in terms of human resources information network. They can control the country, but they lack the means, but more than means. It is the organic structure that guarantee appearability because the judicial police does not have apparatus of monitor certain behavior in need of request. The public order police fulfill certain missions. And these are sometimes one of the covered up people who commit the criminal acts. Then judicial police becomes a little limited. And another thing, in structural terms, the judicial police is just investigation. What do my fellow lawyers do? They intercept. They corrupt the magistrate. When the judiciary police present the evidence, the magistrate says it's not enough and order the case to be dropped. All the work of judicial police done with a great effort is interrupted. Although in some cases the judicial police have been able to operate with a degree of autonomy from politics, they're also vulnerable to politicization. And especially since early 2020, Civil society have been vocal critics of what they see as increasing politicization of the criminal justice system, including both the judicial police and the judiciary. Judges themselves have reported that considerable pressure has been exerted on them if and when cases finally make it to court. But there is even intimidation pressure when someone will talk to the judge, family about the decision to take the case to the trial or they can take guns to the court to refuse the protected judge. We often see the judge's demands in their notebook, lack of security, not only in their homes, but also in the courts. When judges are on trial, people may appear threatening them. There are various forms of pressure, the economic, financial, intimacement, and there is an event of the force of scared judge. But alongside that pressure, there is also a culture of corruption. Today, our judicial system is a way to negotiate, to corrupt, to sell. If you give the money, I will decide in your favor. And no one will interfere because if anyone tries to interfere, I will claim interference with the judicial system. There is certain corruptism. So I think independence of judiciary, first of all, this is being misinterpreted and it's being poorly applied. And this is where the strength of civil society comes in. They bring their own pressure to the judiciary to act with integrity. That's what left a lot of the time civil society. I, for example, my advocacy, as well as that of some colleagues in advocacy to defend people who cannot afford the lawyers. But civil society has yet another role through denouncement, through the pressure, because today there is various means of members of civil society to make complaints, to lobby and the criticism. The system itself in turn, how it works, and the civil society always try to respond. Yet civil society itself is also increasingly under pressure, with journalists and other institutions complaining of a shrinking space for debate and dissent since early 2020 including attacks on journalists like Antonio Alay Silva that we heard at the beginning of this podcast. 
In addition to that, the lack of political will and leadership has created a system that is not in a position to respond to the threat of organized crime. And alongside this, corruption and impunity add an additional dynamic into the strength of illicit markets in the country. Here's Augusto Mario again. Impunity is the main factor in all this instability. In this whole saga of corruption that the country is witnessing and which is completely undermining the designs that fueled the national liberation struggle. All this is motivated by impunity. Impunity, I would say, is the greatest cancer of Guinean society. And as a result, we have repeatedly witnessed acts of private justice. It is very common to hear in Guinea-Bissau that someone has sought to take their supposed right by their own hands. So, looking at the landscape of law enforcement, the judiciary and the politicians, the capacity of the state to investigate organized crime is weak. Another consequence of impunity is the growth of the organized crime network. Because, as you know, organized crime always seeks places of impunity paradise in order to assert itself. And this has unfortunately been a sad reality. We have increasingly seen the affirmation of transnational criminal networks or organizations. This has, in fact, called into question an entire effort made by individual citizens, considered by civil society itself, to build a state based on the values of democracy, the rule of law, and respect for human rights. Which leaves a complex and slightly bleak picture there is no such vision of the Guinean state. Unfortunately, the impunity and, to a certain extent, the organized crime that we have identified has generated the corruption that is eroding the social fabric and the state itself. All this prevents the state from fulfilling its tasks of satisfying the basic needs of the citizens. The president of Guinea-Bissau is dead, assassinated by his own soldiers just hours after a bomb killed his rival, an armed forces general. The ruling party, PIGC, won an absolute majority in the legislative elections of November 2008, and President Nino Vieira invited the PIGC leader, Carlos Gomez Jr., to form a government that took office on the 8th of January 2009. No one knows the whereabouts of this man, Guinea-Bissau's Prime Minister, Carlos Gomez Jr. Seen here earlier this year, he's now missing as the attempted coup by the military took place. It says it was a move to halt foreign aggression. But the reality is that it's not the first time the military has done something like this. There have been multiple coup attempts over the years. It's been accused of assassinations and some of its top generals are said, by the United States and others, to be actively involved in the drug trade. Guinea-Bissau has lurched from one political crisis to another, all the while the citizens of the country have been largely forgotten by the elites. And it's been left to civil society to bang the drum for societal development. So let's end with Augusta Enriquez, an early pioneer of civil society in Guinea-Bissau. Yes, development is political. Development is not a political. It may be not partisan, but parties may have a vision and even a function. And I think it's time to stop polarizing between civil society, political parties, and so on. We are all part of a society. 
and we have to be able to dialogue to find an agreement on a number of issues that are of national interest. These are issues about which it does not matter what political color we have. No matter what sector of society we come from, no matter what our vocation is. Until we are able to raise this agenda of issues that are of great common national interest to be one people, one nation around these issues, we will not be able to assert ourselves as a nation. Because a nation does not assert itself by a flag, a nation does not assert itself by a present. A nation does not assert itself by anthem. A nation asserts itself by shared leadership. And finally, in a country where impunity is rife and civil society is under significant pressure, Amilcar Cabral's words are particularly poignant. We must act as if we answer to and only answer to our ancestors, our children, and the unborn. How will history judge you? That's the end of Guinea-Bissau Civil Society and Illicit Markets, part one of our special episodes on Guinea-Bissau. I'd like to thank Udi Fati, Fode Mane, Rui Landim, Augusto Mario and Augusta Enriquez. To read more of the Global Initiative's work on Guinea-Bissau, you can head over to our website www.globalinitiative.net. In the next episode of our special on Guinea-Bissau, a five-year moratorium on logging in the country is due to end imminently. So are we likely to see a return to the extensive illegal logging that took place between 2012 and 2014? That's in the next episode of Deep Dive, exploring organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.